Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everyone. This is episode 10 already, our first episode in August. This podcast is now entering month number two, and we have a lot this month. I'll be talking to a music director, a composer of a current show, um, brass player, violinists, reed players, university professors, people who are local to me, people in other parts of the country, someone on the other side of the world. Basically, a lot. Pit musicians are everywhere, and I want to talk to everyone from the full-time professionals to the person who isn't a career musician but keeps up an instrument and gets hired for shows in their community. So that brings me to something that I'll mention every now and then. Since this is the first show of August, I think now is a great time. While I'm good to go for at least the next several weeks as far as guests, I am always looking for guests to be on this show for down the road. If you'd like to talk to me about being a pit musician or working with the pit in some other capacity, let me tell you what I'm looking for and how you can reach me. First of all, there are thousands of people playing the same instruments as you, so I would ask that you consider this. What makes your story unique or unusual? What's an experience that you think our listeners would find either entertaining or informative or both? Is there a special topic about being a pit musician that you think we haven't covered or not spent much time on? Something that you would like to talk about? Now, if that's you... Here are the two types of people I want. I, of course, want to hear from you if you have professional experience, whether that's regional, Broadway, Europe, any other continent, etc. If you're a professional in your field, I want to represent your story. However, maybe you're in a town somewhere in Indiana, Ohio, Nebraska, Oregon, or basically just pick a state that doesn't have a city with a million-plus people in it. And maybe you spend your days as a teacher or a doctor or some other working professional and you play pit for a community that maybe struggles to find enough musicians, but they support live musicians in theater. I want the small town stories just as much as the Broadway stories. If you'd like to talk to me from either of these camps about coming onto the show at some point, you can go to davidlanemusic.com slash podcast which just got a nice facelift, and click on the contact form. You can also DM me through Instagram or Twitter at LifeInThePitPod. Okay, now on to the interview for today. If you remember from episode one, I mentioned that I got my undergrad degree from Jacksonville University in Jacksonville, Florida. During the last year or so that I was there, today's guest, Dr. Tony Steve, was just beginning to teach there. He's currently a professor of contemporary music and percussion, but he also has a ton of pit experience from when he used to live in New York and has been in high demand across North and Central Florida to play for tours as they come through. He's played Wicked with the official national tour multiple times. We're going to talk to him about all of that and also something unusual a niche that he's carved for himself that uses pit musician skills. 
Let's check it out to find out more. Here's my interview with Tony Steve. Oh, it's my pleasure to be joined today by Tony Steve. Uh, Tony is coming to us from Jacksonville. And Tony, you're the, uh, your current title at, at JU is uh, Professor of Contemporary Music and Percussion. Yes, and world music, too. Great. So that's our, that's our connection. I was, you know, I'm not sure the exact moment that we met, but we seem to have overlapped with me finishing up as a student and you coming on as a faculty, like maybe the last year I was there. I can't remember. It, it could be. I can't remember as well. Uh, the only, the only <laughs> photographic evidence that I have is that the very last piece that I composed, which was for orchestra called a seafarer's adventure. You're on the timpani for that. So I played that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think I may have met you before then. I, I did a little bit of work with the percussion ensemble because I, I studied with Ken Every for a semester. Yeah. So. Yeah. So yeah. I was there. Yeah. That was the overlap year. Yeah. Was that 97? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Because it would have been the spring of 90. Wait a minute. Yeah. No. I graduated the spring of 97. So it was, it, I think I was in the percussion ensemble fall of 96, but. Okay. It all it all gets a little confused, and uh, our other connection is uh, we we've studied with some of the same teachers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if I just say Doc, you know, we both know who we're talking you know. about. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I, oh my. Oh my lord, yes. <laughs> I I feel like if 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 I wasn't going to do a podcast about this or film music, then I could have just like a one season long. Students of Dr. William Shermer, and just uh, you know, just get a guest on, and we'll just trade stories, and that that would be. I, I don't know if it'd be fun to anybody who <laughs> who hasn't gone to JU, but it'd be fun to us. <laughs> I think it would probably be fun to anybody once you peel back the layers of the onion of Doc. Right, right. You know, you know those conversations. You're talking about baseball, and he starts quoting the baseball encyclopedia, and you can just say. Well, there was no need to have. There's no need to have the internet when you have Dr. Shermer. <laughs> yeah, uh, my the last thing is it was the only time I ever visited his house. It was on a Sunday, and the uh, the Jaguars were playing, and he had the game on, and he had a TV table to his right side, and he'd look down, watch what he was composing, go right back to watching the game, and he'd comment on the game too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite amazing. He's, he's uh, pretty amazing. I'm not sure when this will be released, but we're recording this in July. And um, as of now, Tony, what are what is JU's plans for the fall? We're supposed to go back and we'll be practicing social distancing. Everyone will be wearing masks. My situation's different because as percussionists, we're smacking things. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to worry too much about air. Right. And droplets. So as long as everyone's wearing a mask, mm -hmm. we're in pretty good shape, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'll have protocols in place for the instruments, such as no one will have no. There will be no sharing of sticks, right? Things like that. And when someone's finished playing something, they wipe off the instrument with an alcohol or a peroxide-based liquid, and so we'll move from there. Right. We'll move from there. Well, I hope I hope all goes well. We we need the arts. We need. You know, we need arts education. <laughs> we need yeah. all to go back as, as as much as safely, but as quickly as we can. Yeah, I think it's it's a work in progress for everybody, and anyone that thinks that they have the absolute answer is terribly mistaken. 
That's that's true about most things I found. <laughs> yeah, this is worse though. Yes. <laughs> so what is your what has been you you have a lot of musical hats. You're a percussionist. You're a composer. Um, what has been your path as a musician? What did you what did you do first that you took seriously? I guess snare drum and drum set were my first true loves. And then in high school, my band director, the way I learned how to be a marimba player and mallet player was the sudden two, three week crash course. He handed me a stack of music and said, our piano player for jazz band is not going to be here. These are charts. This is a copy of the David Baker book on jazz harmony. Here are four mallets. This is a little pamphlet from Gary Burton on playing four mallets. The marimba's <laughs> in that room. You can come out in a while. Well, <laughs> and I didn't I didn't want to disappoint him. So my sight reading as far as like reading notes like a piano player line to line, it was typical high school, very average, if not terrible. But I could read changes so I could just sit and read changes. I learned how to read changes in two weeks just out of fear. Mm. So that's how I became a mallet player. And then when I was in college, I had a teacher say yeah, you're playing drum set fine, but you're not Steve Gadd, so good luck. You should think about this mallet thing. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it was good advice. It was probably some of the most absolute real and solid advice I've ever been given by a teacher. Yeah, that's that's quite amazing. Uh, <laughs> I know. Crash course in a room. <laughs> yeah, that's how I started in, in high school. Undergrad, I played a lot of marimba. I played with the symphony. I started playing with the symphony in the fall of 78. As that was when I won an audition, luckily, knock on wood. Right. Uh, you wouldn't win the audition the way that they did. It's changed in 40 some years, 42 years, how the audition process has gone. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not nearly as forgiving. And I'm part of the last generation of people that learned on the job. Mm -hmm. And that's good and bad. Right. The good is you, you're too young and dumb to be fearful. Yeah. And you just do it. Uh, so that was my path, and I thought I maybe I wanted to be an orchestral player, and I did it. I was in the orchestra from '78 to '93, with a couple of years off for grad school, and I was at Ithaca College with Gordon Stout, and I was playing marimba nonstop. But at that time, I was also going into the city. I would get in the car and drive four or five hours, and I would take timpani lessons and go through orchestral repertoire with Dick Horowitz at the Met. And uh, that was that was a game changer for me. So when I got back to Jacksonville after my two years at Ithaca, I just hopped back in the orchestra and it changed the way I played. And I was taking auditions and I was doing fine, but I never won a big one. And it seemed to me it was a lot more fun playing pop shows. And I'd played Broadway type things through college and high school, college. Yeah. And it was fine. It was fine. I liked it. But the more I started playing pops and pop music and getting interested in that, it was like, ah, this is great. I like this. And I yeah. played uh, I played at the Alhambra Theater for two or three years, I think, maybe two years. When they first brought back live music, I was working for Ellen Milligan, mm -hmm. the pianist. And uh, I was doing that and teaching school. And then I said, I need to have sort of a life yeah. and I kind of got my life back and uh, there it is. 
in between Ithaca and Jacksonville and all of that Alhambra stuff, though, I was in in New York and I was subbing and I was in Europe. I did a European tour of Chorus Line, which was interesting. The contractor called me about a week before we left, or at least I was leaving because I was replacing somebody that was already there. Yeah. He said, can you play the drum set book? Here comes the drum set again. And I said, oh, sure, I can do that. He said, just learn it in case. Right. <laughs> and I didn't know what the machinations, the politics of the gig happened to be at the time. And anyway, I got over there and I got off the plane in Dusseldorf, took a train to Cologne, got off the train, walked into the show. I caught about the last 10, 15 minutes of the first half. And then the conductor comes up to me and says, all right, play the second half. Let's go. Oh, nice. <laughs> and, you know, it was fine. Everything went fine. I got to stay. So yeah. that's, that's the thing. It's, 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 it can be an unforgiving business. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's a lot gentler now than it used to be, hmm. if that yeah. makes any sense. Okay. Yeah. People are kinder. And I like that. It's not so much conductors don't, there's not as much yelling or screaming or things like that. It's, it's a gentler world in that respect. And I like it. It's, yeah. Makes it more enjoyable to play. I remember, I don't remember if it was, I don't know, was it Mr. Mr. Krosnick one time? Somebody told me a story about Arthur Fiedler guest conducting the Jacksonville symphony. And, and it was kind of a bit of a horror story. <laughs> yeah. Those were, those are true stories actually. Yeah. yeah. yeah I've, I've seen some horror stories, but I, yeah. I'll keep my mouth shut. That's fine. <laughs> anyway, so that was my path. And now I just wear a lot of different hats. I do a lot of world music. I do, uh, I still play a lot of marimba, mm -hmm. a lot of drum set. I do a lot more teaching. I'm, I'm at a point in my career, I'm pulling back a little bit on some of the things I play. Right. I would rather teach. And at the end of the day, it's, it's a young man's game. Uh, I, I hear there's, you. There's, 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 <laughs> You know, I'm 60. I've been doing it for 40 some years regularly, making a living. And uh, I, I don't want to get in the car and move timpani anymore. If that's the honest to God's truth. Yeah. So, I mean, that might make some people, some some younger players out there will say, thank God he's going to back <laughs> off a little bit. And, and I am, you know, it, I'd rather work from home. Why lie? Yeah, I understand <laughs> about it's, peeling it's, back. Um, you know, I, I played French horn throughout. Uh, high school and college as a secondary instrument, you know, it was never on the same level as piano. And, and I kept it up. Occasionally I'd do like a little small gig here and there, but about two, I guess been maybe close to three years ago, I just said, you know, I haven't re I don't really play the horn much. It's just taking up space. So I just, I sold it. <laughs> I kept the, <laughs> I kept the mouthpiece. That's my safeguard. So like, you know, I can occasionally buzz on it, keep the embouchure, but, That's but funny. you know, I just said, yeah, it, I need to focus on fewer things. So we get rid of that. Uh, I do want to backtrack one thing you mentioned, you're talking about sight reading on Marimba. Um, good friend of mine. And, uh, and I don't know if he was a student of yours or not. Dave Krosner. Yeah. yeah. Dave. He yeah. was, he once told me he, he, uh, we were we were talking about mallet and and now now this may have changed this this was dave as a student so he he may have a different opinion now uh as a teacher but he said you can't really sight read 
on marimba because you, your sticks are out in front of you. It's not like a piano where you can feel with your fingers. Um, but now, obviously, you've got to be able to, to get around that somehow. How, what, what tricks do you use to sight read when you can't tell where your mallets are as easily? You know, as a, as a piano. Well, uh, I learned what I learned sight reading wise. Uh, I was playing some duets with Gordon Stout. This was a long, long time. This was before I even got to graduate school one summer. And we're playing, we're sight reading some Haydn duets. And he said, ah, this isn't much fun. You're not nailing so many notes. Mm. And I, and I started studying his method of idiokinetics where you learn the keyboard by feel. Yeah. So you, if I'm standing here and I do this motion, I know what note I am on. So that's the key, not looking down. Yeah. Four mallet sight reading's tricky. You can do it, but uh, that's sort of what saves my career, and that's what I'm kind of known for in the areas. I'm I'm a, supposedly a good sight reader. Some days better than others. Yeah. If I'm working on it, you have to keep it up. Five, ten minutes a day. That's all you need. You don't need to do too much. And with the advent of the internet, all you've got to do is go to IMSLP and you've got thousands upon thousands, if not millions of pages of notes to look at and just read, yeah. you know, and think of it as business. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's really no different than that. Play the right note, the right rhythm. And with that sight reading, I guess, as Dick Horowitz always said, uh, if you miss the rhythm, you're in trouble. It's all wrong. And one of Gordon's great axioms for me was never miss a rhythm sight reading because you, you'll be able to fool a few people. Not everybody in the room has perfect pitch. Right. So you can get by it, you know, and it keeps you moving. Wrong rhythms are obvious. Wrong notes, not as much. I'm going to save this audio clip and <laughs> onto my phone and play it for my students because we have this, uh, I, well, they don't argue with me, but they don't listen to me. You know, I, when I tell them, um, there's a priority of, the, of ways I want you to learn and it's rhythm first and then it's, yeah. and then it's the notes. But they're so concerned about the notes that they're letting five beats go by before they play the next note, and or, yeah, or they're just, rushing through half notes. <laughs> yeah, they. You know, one of the things you look for, I look for, you know, in, in that is playing the right shape. Yeah. You know, I was out. I was out playing with Frank Sinatra Jr. a few years back, and we were in Miami, and we were playing the same show every night, generally. But there was a group of kids that came in as an outreach, as a youth outreach. And so we were rehearsing, doing a sound check. So we're setting up, and Mr. Mr. Sinatra says, all right, go to the other side of the book. Pull this tune. Mm. And what we did, we just started sight reading for the kids. Yeah. And it was like, all right, this is kind of, To me, that's, that's my favorite part is the first time through something. Yeah. To see... You know, it's an intellectual challenge to see if I can get through it and knock it out. If I can't, I know where my weaknesses are, and I need to go back and fix that. Yeah, that's a that's a great that's a great approach. Well, let's just talk about, let's talk about theater. So you okay? So I, I think you kind of covered it in your story, but but when did you get started? When was your first show? My first show would have probably been 1981. Mm -hmm. Working for I was. was playing for Roz McAnulty. I think the first regular show was at Theater Jack's, and it was a show, Kiss Me, Kate. Okay. I think it was Kiss Me, Kate. Okay. Yeah. And have you have you always been kind of active in theater, or have you had breaks here and there? Well, no, I think I've always pretty, I've stayed 
pretty busy with it, either theater or, or, or opera. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the last, probably the last 10 years, 15 years, I've been busier with theater. Right. So what, what, what excites you about playing music for theater? Is it the music itself or is it something about the process? Sometimes it's a little of both. Yeah. It's, it's a little of both. Uh, the process, the excitement of doing it correctly, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense, getting your setup right, getting it where it flows, and uh, not missing. You know, you play yeah. eight shows a week. You need to be at at least 90, 98%, 97%, you know, if you're, and if you're playing drum set, you, you're at 99%. Right. There's not a lot of room for error. Uh, it's brain food. Yes. It really is brain food. Some of the, some of the musicals I really, really loved. Some of the musicals. Yeah. I think it was a uh, paint your wagon, that musical. Yeah. I played that and it, I think it's, Two hours, two and a half hours, three hours, but it feels like it lasts a month. (laughs) There might be one or two tunes in it that I think it's not a musical I would race out to see. Right. Ever. (laughs) Now, uh, just your last few years, you've, uh, you know, you've posted, you know, some really nice setups like uh, I know. Uh, so so what what has been your situation you've uh, have you been like a, a local or regional player that gets contracted for tours that's kind of what i understood yeah i get contracted for tours uh through a fellow down in orlando and so it, de- depending on the show uh i've played wicked three times which is exciting mm-hmm. it, it gets easier in some ways harder in others yeah <laughs> but uh you have that uh Motown, the Carol King music, beautiful. Yeah, you know that's an easy show to play. Uh-huh. Uh, I think out of all of the shows I've played over the years, you know, Chorus Line, I like, I really like that. I think that's just a solid. You know, it was successful for a reason, mm-hmm. Be, you know, because it's just such great material. But if I had to, if somebody said you only can play one show the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. I would pick spam a lot. Oh. Yeah. Because it's funny and I'm a big Monty Python fan, but there's some very interesting playing that goes on and stylistic things that happen that are really well done. I've never gotten to see Spam a lot. I feel like it's cursed. There was a tour coming through one time and we had a big snowfall come that day. And, <laughs> and we chose closing night to go see it. So uh, it's like I wasn't able to see it then. Something happened on another opportunity. But um, my favorite song in all of music theaters is, is in that show, and that's the song that goes like this. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's just that's a great, a great one. Yeah, there's some great tunes. I'm going to give you a, uh, give you a platform here because I know one thing you've been uh, outspoken of on social media is uh, the, the contrast of experience you've had between union stagehands and non-union oh. stagehands. And, uh, yeah. Uh, so, so what, well, I guess give us, give us, give us uh, an example of each. <laughs> having a union stagehand is like getting up in the morning and you walk outside and you look at your car that was a 1981 old Toyota Corolla beater. Yeah. And what's sitting there is a Rolls Royce. Mm. 
non-union stage hands, it's like going out to your rolls and seeing your 1981 beater uh. <laughs> with rust. Nice. It's the difference between adults and toddlers. Oh, wow. They can walk, but it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am outspoken about that because when you need something, you need something. I was playing the jazz festival in 1986. Mm-hmm. And a thing happened, and the band that was supposed to open up between sets and the, the way it worked at the jazz festival, then we had opened up for Rare Silk, the group I was with, and we're standing around, and Dan Kassoff, who used to run the, the festival, comes went running up to Don Casper, and he said, we need you guys to open up for Miles Davis. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, okay. So we had already gotten our stuff off, and I was just standing there staring at Miles, going, you know, having sort of a, a religious moment of like, <laughs> he's a god yeah. and I'm a piker. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and it's the truth. I mean, he's he's Miles. Mm-hmm. And anyway, we get set up. And I again, back to the reading, I don't memorize a lot of music. You know, one of the things Stout taught me, he, says, he said, uh, nobody, uh, nobody's ever paid me to memorize anything. You know, be a good reader. So I read things, and a lot of jazz guys look down on that. And I'm like, you know what? You want to make a living, learn to read music. Yeah. You know, not everything is by ear. You yeah. know, it, it's it's a double-edged sword. But anyway, moving along, I'm standing there. I've got my marimba set up, getting ready to play. And I, I've got my music, and the only thing I didn't have was a stand and a stand light. Mm-hmm. And out of nowhere, a fellow named Nick Chicarella, Nick goes, boom. And he, without even, he looked up at the stage and I must've looked like a deer in the headlights. And he went, boom, here you go. Mm-hmm. And there was a stand, poof, and we started and that was it. And there were 20,000 people out there and it was like, oh my God. Yeah. And so that's the difference between a union and a non-union stagehand. One can save you, the other one can destroy you. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'm sure, you know, for, for just the benefit of the listeners, I'm sure there are outliers out there. There's probably some oh, individuals yeah. that are great that are uh, that are yeah. non-union. There's probably, you know, individuals in union that aren't so great. But you're talking about, oh, yeah. what, you know, a uh, large sample set has, has taught you yeah. to expect one and, thing. And and, and I'll, I'm going to make a little shout out here. I'm just going to give them a big shout out. Local 115 from yeah. Jacksonville, the IOTC. Been all over the state, all over the region all over the country. They're the best. Mm-hmm. They're the best. They are as good as anybody in New York. They're as good as anybody in Miami. Actually, they're great. This is a great bunch. They're the of the highest level of professionalism. I never have a problem. And they always help. And if you don't even think you need help, they help you think ahead. They're, that's a difference. And it makes getting the music right. If you're thinking about something over here production-wise, you're going to make a mistake and you're not getting paid to make a mistake. Right. <laughs> so that's my reasoning for that. Make it easy. And that's their job. And it, it, it's, it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. Oh no, no, no. I wanted to hear your soapbox. So <laughs> great, great job with that. <laughs> um, so this is something I've started asking everybody just cause I'm, I'm kind of collecting titles for future reference, but what would you say is the most difficult book that you've ever played for theater? Wicked. Wicked? Wicked or Little Mermaid. There's some quick, quick things that happen in Little Mermaid that, that are tricky. But as far as just 
darned hard wicked because you have 52 different instruments and usually what happens you have your setup that you've worked on Mm -hmm. and then you get to the pit and you have to take it and constrict it because they usually split the pit and sell out the first half of it half of the pit so you take this setup it might be like this and then you just have to go boom and so that changes your choreography Right. So that usually happens with Wicked. This last time it didn't. It was nice. I had more room than I've ever had in my life for a show because I, I was remote down in the basement at the at the Moran Center. Uh, <laughs> so repeat that. How many instruments for Wicked? Fifty-two. That's what I thought you said. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm going to interrupt the interview here just for a moment because uh, we have a special feature that was recorded. Um, quite a bit after the interview that I want to include here as a special feature. So talking about these instruments for Wicked, Tony offered to give a demonstration of some of these instruments, and uh, he wasn't able to do it at the time that we interviewed, uh, so he recorded a video and he sent it along. I'm going to include just the audio portion here, but if you're interested in checking out the video to see what these instruments look like, you can see that at our Instagram page at Life in the Pit Pod. But here is that uh, demo, and then afterwards we will go right back to the interview. David, I'm going to give you a few sounds from one of my favorite shows, which is Wicked. Uh, one, the infamous water phone. The traditional slide whistle that happens in a lot of Broadway shows the chinchock the flexitone which is an odd sound coconut shakers the soft shaker A regular shaker, and then it's combined often with the egg shakers, fattens it up a little bit. And then finally, the most important, the ubiquitous F natural goat bell. It happens once in the whole show. And you know, it wouldn't be a Broadway show without just a little bit of xylophone. Um, is there a is there a show that you haven't played that you really want to play? Uh, other than the playing with a Zappa cover band, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love that. I yeah. would love just playing the Mallet book for a Zappa band. Yeah. But uh, uh, I'd like to play Lion King. I think I'd I'd, I'd really love playing the Marimba book on Lion King. Yeah. I have never played it. And they always bring people because apparently the book's really hard. Mm-hmm. But I would love to play that book. I, I I music directed a junior version of that for a camp last year, and you know we used like <clears throat> the tracks that were recorded for the show. And yeah. I wasn't expecting to really like the the music the way I did because the movie is one of those. You know, I didn't see it as a, as a child. I, I don't have, like, nostalgia attached to it, you know, like, like you know, some people. But 
so it it was I liked it. I didn't love it. And yeah, you know, I, I like the musical. I like the stuff from it. Yeah. I like the I like the musical better than the movie. Yeah, I think so. Too. I, w- I was really surprised how much yeah. I love the music from the musical. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're talking I, about the Zappa cover band. I, I recently heard on uh, another podcast where it was an I know it was an audio book. It was a story about Zappa. And apparently he he could tell every mistake that every band member made and charge them like I don't know how much per wrong note. It was in a performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he was he was he was a hard man to work for, apparently. But uh, you know, he had some of the best bands ever on the planet. Yeah, he, and apparently, if you argued with him, he would he'd go over to the playback and he'd say, "Here," <laughs> and, and 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 then you never argued again. <laughs> yeah, there's no. Yeah, that's some. Yeah, he was brilliant. Anyway, well, let's so, transition yeah. to something that's become. Uh, a big part of your life over the, I, I would say, you know, this millennium definitely so far yeah. that I think of, as far as I can tell, it's kind of a pit experience on its own. And that is uh, you're composing and performing mu- new music for silent films. Yes. Uh, started out. I was, when I was in New York, I played a 10 minute clip from uh, Coney Island, a fatty Arbuckle, Buster Keaton film and we did it and the fellow that ran it just handed me a bunch of xylophone parts and stuff and said just play these this will be fine mm-hmm. and we did it and I'm in the middle of it and we were I can't remember we were in we were one of the big hotels in New York and uh, I can't remember which one at this point it's a blur mm-hmm. but we're playing and I'm like ah oh, this could go so much better this could go so much better if it were more thought thrown into it I thought mm-hmm. and then when I moved back home, I kept sitting around thinking there's got to be something better. And so I started working with it. I got, I got a copy of it. Those were in the VHS days. So, uh, I got a copy and that's when I started scoring them. And so it had been about, it would have been about 2000. I'd had a big interest in animated film music, which I think is very similar. Mm-hmm. And I did some work on that. In, in the late 80s and early 90s. But I found that you can take a silent film, you can use source music that they had at the time that's out there, you can find things and play it in a very period style. And then when you get to films like Pandora's Box or uh, Nosferatu, you can take that and go post-Second Viennese School yeah, and it works. So you can you can really dig in a little harder and 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 delve into more dissonant sounding scores and and new sounds. So you can almost it's harder in some ways because it's a lot of music. You know, yeah. an hour and twenty five minute film that's a long time, and uh, it's an unforgiving yeah <laughs> medium because. Once you start, you really can't stop. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> now you you've know. uh, now you've played them yourself as a solo, but you've you've partnered yeah. uh, you've partnered in various ways. Uh, like you've worked with Bob Moore before, right? With with that. I have Bob and I have worked together. That's one of the things that came out of this is Bob and I have a good partnership. We we stumbled on 
being being good workmates with this when we were both. He was the music director at San Jose Catholic Church, and I was teaching at the parish school for six years. And we got called to play something one morning, and we did it. And it was like, oh, this is easy. Yeah. And it was just some improvisation. So the first big film we did was Nosferatu, mm-hmm. and we're gonna be we're gonna do that again for this for Halloween this year. Except in the COVID age, we will pre-record what we do yeah. instead of it being live. But we'll, you know, my belief is we'll just do it in one take, and it's this is gonna be fine because yeah. we just know what each other is going to do. And that's a big thing. You you know, you have that probably with people you work with in theater. You yeah. know you don't have to think about it, and it makes it easy. And so we, we do that together. But And sometimes I will take a film and I'll score it where I'm just the only one, and I'll create an electronic track, backing track, basically a score, and that I'll do that. And it depends on the style of the movie, on how I do it. Right. Now, uh, have I seen announcements before that, uh, like, like students of yours have also helped in, like, an ensemble form? Yeah, I had a grant from the Cultural Council in 2016, and uh, I used all JU students, and we did three performances at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Jacksonville, and we, the first series were all slapstick films, and then the second in the series, we did uh, more serious films and uh, more experimental film, some of the French experimental silent films, with some slapstick put in so you could clear your palate. And then finally, the last film that we did on that was Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Now, when you perform the silent films, do you... Uh, I assume you're just kind of like in a theater. You're going off visual cues and you're trying to memorize the tempo uh, rather than use a click track. Would that be correct? Sometimes. Yes. Uh, sometimes. But yeah, most of the time, yes. The answer, the, the short answer is yes. Mm-hmm. The moderately elongated answer is uh, with my Nosferatu score, what I've done is I... We have a click that it goes with, and the click from the beginning to the end is at 60 beats a minute. Ah. And then everything that I've done works within that. Yeah. So we don't don't have to change things up. So there's a lot of odd groupings. Right. <laughs> is, okay. is a good way to put it. Okay. And my score to uh, The Flying Ace, it's with a 16-piece chamber orchestra, I did the same thing. Except finally, after a while, it's just like, just throw it away. Just go by sight and sound. Yeah. Because it was set up with a click, but it's better without a click. Just a few more questions. Uh, since, you're a, since you're a teacher, I know you, you have things that you recognize. As soon as you start to give it the advice, you're like, well, I, I say this all the time. What's something, <laughs> what's something that you're always telling your students that you would say applies to musicians who want to do live theater? You can't stop once it starts. Right. <laughs> you know, a kid will play in a lesson and they'll miss and they kind of go, oh, it's like, just keep driving the bus. Yep. You know, the general audience, this is going to sound terrible, but it's a, I think it's reality-based in that people don't hear like we do. Right. People don't hear like we do. The general, you know, unless you're just, 
all of a sudden it sounds like Schoenberg in the middle of a Mozart serenade. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they don't hear the same way. Uh, so that said, the biggest lesson I bring to them is that, you know, see how you do the first time, find the hard spots. But remember, once once the bus starts moving, you're not allowed off. Right. Yep. <laughs> that's that's the biggest thing. And then I and then it goes back to one of the earlier topics. Learn to sight read. Yeah. Yeah. I was subbing for a fellow. I was subbing for a guy named Glenn Ryan. Great player. Uh, and I was subbing Christmas Carol when it was at Madison Square Garden in the theater. And there's this one tune. Link by link. That's the tune. Mm-hmm. And there's this in the middle of it. There's this big xylophone piccolo duet. Mm-hmm. And it's weird. And one key, it's nice and easy. And then there's another key, depending on the other singer. So you have to learn it in both keys. It's not, you know, you just have to do it. So be prepared for anything. Right. That's the thing I tell them. So always be over-prepared. Yeah. That's the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's great advice. Uh, so where can people follow you if they want to keep up with what you're doing or even check out some of your music? Uh they can go to my Tony Steve Musician page on Facebook. Uh, that's my musician band page. That's the best place. They can follow me on Instagram. Most of the time on Instagram, it's just photographs of my dog in the lake. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so basically, my musician page. My website's sort of a disaster right now. Okay. And so I wouldn't send anyone there. Don't okay. go to my website. It's not worth it. Right. I mean, I need to read. I need to get that reworked. But go to my musician page. You'll see a lot of things from silent film to some theater stuff and some solo percussion stuff. And I have on my regular page, if they want to hear marimba improvisations, I'm doing that series for my grandson, Improvisations for Benjamin. I'm at 112. Yeah. And I've taken a pause this week and I'm going to start up again and finish it off at 125 and then we'll be done with the series. Now, if I'm doing the math right, you actually started this uh, a week before the everything shut down, right? I started it March 12th. Okay. Or yep. Mar- no, March 11th, I believe. Okay. It was the day my wife, my wife, Connie was out in California and she was getting ready to come back. And I thought it would be funny to play some marimba for Benjamin and it just morphed into this thing. And so I'm going to end it up at 125. I think that's good. I was going to wait until there was a vaccine, but it's like I could be old by then. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you have a lot more endurance. I think I made it to about 40 and I was like, uh, yeah, but I was doing a lot of editing with the videos like and and oh, it took yeah. a lot of work so if i that's just a lot of work if i just press play it might be a little bit, a little bit different but yeah I, I ended up setting a, a certain standard for the look yeah. and, I, and i was like well uh, this is hard to do every day and and yeah, i had other really things hard. that i had to do so <laughs> yeah there's but, other things that we have to do yeah well <laughs> thank you for checking in with us today and uh just sharing sharing your stories and your experience Thank you for having me, David. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, if anybody has any questions for me outside of this, please go to my Facebook page, my musician page, and feel free to send me a message and ask. I'll be happy to answer any question that I can answer. And if I don't know the answer, 
I'll do what all my good teachers told me to do. I'll go find someone that does have it. Yep. Be- better than making it up. <laughs> yeah, that's never good. No. That all, that's always a fail. Right. We'll, <laughs> we'll include the information on your page in the show notes. But uh, again, cool. thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks. See you soon. Once again, if you'd like to actually see the instrument demos that Tony gave, uh, head on over to Instagram at Life in the Pit Pod. Uh, there will be a video up when this episode airs. Next Friday, I'm talking to someone local. Someone who's a bit of a legend in my region. I won't say more other than, obviously, if you, if you live in my area and are connected to theater in any way, you're going to be excited about my guest. But even if you're not, it's a fun guest, and I know that you're going to enjoy hearing her story. That's on episode 11, this Friday, August 7th. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, again, on Instagram or Twitter, you can follow at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram personally at David Lane Music or Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thanks to Mark Parolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. All original music is composed and performed by David Lane. For the time being, you can find out more about this podcast at the new and improved davidlanemusic.com slash podcast or at our Podbean page, lifeinthepit.podbean.com. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast and share with your friends. Thank you for listening. <laughs>